everybody. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I am your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor, LLC, and I'm super, super, super happy to share this hour with you guys, where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Somewhere in the Middle is intended to be a safe place where we can learn and grow together, and to do that, we discuss a variety of topics ranging from love to politics to money to business and beyond because the human experience is wide and varied. And I know you guys have lots to share with us as well, so we don't want to just talk at you for the next hour. Make sure you participate and engage. Feel free to uh, send us your questions. Make sure that you, uh, you know, unmute your lines so that you can talk to us. We want to hear from you. So get your questions, get your comments ready, because in the second half of the show, we'll be taking calls from our audience. Now, you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows, exploring life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel and has grown to its own platform, but we are ever grateful and ever loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are only here because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. So big shout out to Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel. I also want to give a shout out to my guest on the February 9th show, poet William Carroll. You can connect with William on Facebook and Instagram, and his books are available on Amazon and at other fine book retailers. Now, if you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. William shared great insights about his creative process and some of his work. Now, you can get to that replay by visiting Somewhere in the Middle at bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Somewhere in the Middle Radio, and checking out the on-demand shows. You can find our complete show archives, including that February 9th show, at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Somewhere in the Middle podcast. I also want to give a big shout out to Bruce George 
of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a critical message, especially right now and especially for the youth, but not just for the youth. We all need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius. So you can learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, I am so pleased to have my guest tonight. And the reason is, it is, as you guys know, Black History Month. And this guest reminds us that black history is American history. So it's not just about Black History Month. It's about black history as American history every single day. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Geraldine Edwards Hollis is a wife, mother, and grandmother who resides in Stockton, California. She attended Tougaloo College in her home state of Mississippi. And while at Tougaloo, she embarked on a historical event that changed history in Mississippi. As a member of the Tougaloo Nine, Ms. Hollis and the rest of the Tougaloo Nine were instrumental in desegregating libraries in Mississippi. Ms. Hollis is an author who published her first book, Back to Mississippi, in 2011. She's a public speaker, community activist, and volunteer with several nonprofits. She constantly encourages, enlightens, and mentors in living life while continuing to overcome adversity. She is strong in her beliefs and generous in her contributions. Ms. Hollis enjoys living a healthy life and knows that education is a force to enable accountability to self and community. Her second book, March Memories, is geared toward young audiences, and she answers the questions of why she put her life on the line and put her future in jeopardy. Her story shows that anyone can overcome challenges in their lives. So I'd like to welcome Ms. Geraldine Hollis to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Thank you so much, Ms. Hollis, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, to you, Ms. Michelle Berard, and to your show and your uh, listeners at Somewhere in the Middle and to your, your engineer and everyone that has a, a hand in making this show possible. I'm very appreciative, and uh, also I... Thank you for mentioning Miss um, Beverly Black. She has been instrumental in getting so many things out. And I just appreciate all of the opportunities that has been afforded and available for us to get our story out into the public uh, arena. And I do know that black history is American history. And as I share and talk with students, uh, all ages, uh, adults, and anyone that I can really get a listening ear, I want them to know that um, black history is very important. And it is just awesome how many things we have been able to accomplish in our lives. But you don't hear about these things. And that's why I continue to talk. And that's why I continue to share. And that's why I appreciate opportunities like this to be able to share some of the things that I want people to know about who we are, what we are, and what we have the capacity to do and to be. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again. And, you know, I, 
I start off my, my show with uh, a couple of questions for my guests. And the reason I do this is because I think it really gets into who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it now. So I like to ask these two questions. And I would love to hear uh, your responses to these. And that is, Geraldine Hollis, who are you and how did you become who you are today? That's a good one. Um, I really like that question because, um, first of all, I'm a mother and a wife. I'm a Christian woman. I work in a church. I do all of these things, but that's just what I do. But who am I? I remember when I was first a mother and I had my daughter, I wanted her to to know that same question. I didn't ask her in a way that you're asking me, but I led her mind through all kinds of things so that she could um, get that message. Um, and um, what happened was that she would always listen and she would wonder, why was I asking her this question? Who are you? And she would tell me she's a girl, she's all of these things. But I constantly asked her, who are you? Because I wanted her to know that she was the sum of all of the things that she thought, that she learned, that she became, not just in that part of what she uh, presented to others, but who she believed that she was within herself. So when you ask me that question, I think about who I really am. I am a a person that was born in the mid-19th century at a time when things were so different from what they are right now. But I grew up in a very strong Christian atmosphere. I grew up in a very strong community atmosphere where the family was a part of how you were raised, where the community had to do with how you behaved, and where the education was a part of what you really looked forward to. And I embraced all of these things to know that I was, first of all, appreciated, I was loved, and I was expected to have some things that I could contribute to my family and to my society. And I learned at an early age that I just was not privileged, but I was here because there was something for me to do also. And so that sort of made me the person that I was. And what I looked for as I went through my life during those mid-19th century, well, that's the 20th century at that time, right? But I really saw things, and I wanted to be able to do and to be a part of those things. But then I knew that there were some constraints. But you see, my family nourished me so much that I was able to really think 
that maybe there is a way for me to be a part of the things that I really wanted to be. And so I was grateful to learn that who I am is what I envisioned myself to be, who I am is what God made me to be, and who I am is what my family nurtured me to be. And thankfully, I am. Go ahead, ma'am. I'm sorry. Thankfully, I am. Well, to me, that answer kind of leads right into um, your life as an activist. Um, Yes. You know, because you mentioned that you were uh, able to and expected to contribute to your community and and that you were reared in a very Christian and community-based atmosphere. You also commented on how that is distinctly different from the way things are today. And I'd like to ask you to elaborate on what you mean by being reared in that Christian community that, and that community-based community, you know, that sense of, of community, and how that's different from today. Well, it's very different uh, because now uh, our young people uh, come into the world with um, a different view uh, they are more revered and um, given to, and um, I would say I, I'm a, I'm a mother and I'm a grandmother, mm-hmm. and I know that there was a distinct difference in my daughter and in my granddaughter. We are all young. We are, we were all females, but there was a, a big difference. Uh, the fact that when I grew up, I had all of my family around me. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I had my daughter, uh, we didn't have as much of the close-knit family around us until I actually moved back uh, to my uh, home area. And even then, uh, the families, my family was sort of split because we didn't have uh, my husband and I in the same locality. Uh, we were more of a separated family in terms of the fact that he was in the military mm-hmm. at that time. And I was working, and uh, my my daughter had to um, do and endure some things that I didn't have to endure uh, when she was growing up. Um, so... That in itself uh, was very different in 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 the, in the uh, nurturing uh, that she got. Although I was a very good mother, and my husband and I became very good parents to her, uh, she didn't get the same type of uh, extended family. And even in growing up, she didn't have the amount of people around her in a close proximity that I had and the cousins and the extended family that was just all around in this nuclei of the black family in the hometown that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And when my granddaughter came along, she was so well revered by 
myself and my daughter and her uh, family, but they weren't very close. She uh, had mommy, she had daddy, but she had grandparents that came in, but we weren't right there for her as much uh, being in that area. And I, I say this because when we when we look back over the families that we had in those early years, the whole of your bringing up was done with the community, the neighbors. Uh, you might not have had any relationship to anybody that lived close by, but they were aunts, they were uncles, they were cousins. We had a neighborhood of families all around. And this really helped with all of the things that we did. We had to be, um, we had expectations. Even as a young girl, I had roles of things, well, they call them chores, of things that I had to do. And not that I uh, really uh, wanted to do them, but they were just a part of how we pulled together. When my grandmother would go out and forage for food, I went along with her. It's pretty much the same as the grocery store today, but it was much more of a learning situation. So in everything that I did as a girl, I was learning. My grandmother taught me uh, medications, uh, the the natural uh, medicines and things that we used. She taught me how to take care of myself when there were injuries, when there was illnesses. So we had a nuclei of learning all around us. So that in itself, when we went out to work or when they went out to work in the garden, everybody had something that they could do. There was a sense of you had to be responsible for this. If I couldn't pick it, I could pick it up. If I couldn't lift it, somebody would help me to carry it. So there was always a connection with family, with extended family, with neighbors. When there was too much food, you would take it over to the neighbors. You would share it. So those are the kinds of things that I began my life with, that everyone was important around us. Uh, If there were some disagreements, the families would come together. Uh, There was no uh, negativity or, I would say, any uh, heavy uh, type of things that would go on that would uh, lead to somebody getting uh, really hurt or any type of profanity that was said or just to be able to not really be respectful of each other. And that's the kind of uh, atmosphere that I grew up in. Now, when my daughter came along, uh, she had to go to a daycare. And mm. although she knew that she was going to daycare, uh, because of being an only child, she had some responsibilities. But when she would go to the daycare, she also learned some of those things about being a caring, uh, responsible person. And she told me later on that she learned how to do this because that meant that she got to have the things that she wanted. Uh, <laughs> so she learned how to forge in a way that it was meaningful to her. And Mm -hmm. uh, if she had to uh, help the teacher, she enjoyed that, helping the teacher, because that meant that she got to eat all of the goodies that she wanted also, (laughs) and she was not denied. Now, granddaughter was different. Um, That was a different situation. 
But over the years, we have seen her come around. But we didn't have the the, the nurturing and the outreach for her. So that meant that we had to try really hard within the small nuclei of just one grandparent, uh, one grandfather, one grandmother, and not have all of the family around. So that meant that she had to rely on other people for this type of uh, encouragement. But she turned out okay so far, thankfully. Oh, what I'm hearing is that that... um, I don't want to say breakdown, but there is in some ways a breakdown. I don't think it's in uh, specifically in black communities. I think that's partially across the the country and across all communities as people move away from home, right? Because it used to be where most people would grow up and live in the same neighborhood or nearby or at least in the same city as their family. So you would have these large family gatherings. Um, But now people move away, you know, and and live in other yeah. cities, partly because of the economy, partly because of the jobs that are available to them now. But is it are are am I hearing from you that maybe it's impacted the black community in in other ways that may be a little more detrimental? One of the things that I I latch on to that you mentioned was the if there were any disagreements in the family or in the community, you guys would come together. Right. And that it would avoid that negativity that could cause people to end up having serious harm come to them as a result of, of that conflict. And is that possibly part of the reason that we see some of the, um, what I might call particularly aggressive behavior sometimes, that maybe we're not as feeling as connected to one another as we once did? Or what? what is your thought on that? Well, Basically, you are saying it in a very well put way, because as the children have evolved, uh, they become more self-centered, and that's one of the things. Uh, it's more about me, not about us. And um, I think that that's not the children's fault. It also has to do with uh, what you already have alluded to: is that parents now don't have that support. And so they don't have the nurturing. So actually, when uh, the younger generation is coming along, they are given more latitude or more uh, material things to sort of uh, make up for that um, nurturing uh, togetherness. And uh, they may have love, but a lot of times the love is given in material things and money and uh, articles. And um, so... I think that this is, has been a, a situation that has changed in the last uh, 60 or 70 years, not just with the blacks, but with the, so many of uh, our um, citizens and, and, and people in general. So let me ask you then, how does that community base that you had lead into you going to Tougaloo College and the events that that led up, what were the events specifically that led up to uh, going into that library? Oh, you really jumped on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Uh, one of the things that I did not bring out is that I grew up reading a lot. Mm-hmm. I was a ferocious reader. And that sparked something in me that let me know that there were possibilities outside of my community, outside of this uh, the state that others were doing and that there were things that could be accomplished because people were already doing them. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that if we learn about things and we learn how they're being done, we get the the idea that uh, we can make changes in our own lives, that we can reach out for a better situation, that all of us can uh, be at a better life and a better way of living. And that's probably uh, the basis for what I did uh, when I made that jump from uh, just being at Tuvalu. And the reason why I went to Tuvalu is because I had uh, an idea and a knowledge of some of the colleges that were in my uh, vicinity there was Alcorn, there was uh, Natchez College, there was Gramlin, there was uh, the Southern University down in New Orleans and places around there, Baton Rouge, rather. Uh, families that I had that knew about these places, and they uh, would let me know that those places were available to me. But when I learned about Tougaloo and the um, way that it was set up and uh, the kind of administration and and um, professors, the various ethnic groups that were a, a part of this, I really was interested. And when I got to the campus to see about uh, this particular school, I was amazed because I grew up in pretty much uh, where there was no interaction with anyone other than the black or the African-American groups. Uh, if we had interactions with any other whites, there was more like you. We're not in the same league with you. As a girl, I remember specifically going to a, um, they had these um, um, drug stores that had a counter in there, and they would sit down with these little uh, wire-framed uh, uh, chairs, and they would serve them uh, Sundays and and ice cream cones. And my grandfather would take me to that drugstore, and I wanted some of that ice cream, too. I wanted to be able to sit like, like those other little girls. But I didn't have that opportunity, and that, that let me know. You know, if I want to do that sometimes, I really would like to be able to do that. But at a very early age, maybe six or seven, I could see the difference. Mm-hmm. Although I lived in a very nurturing um, family neighborhood, I had to uh, go to school and walk three miles almost in every town that I lived in to be able to get to the school that I had to go to. I had to walk past uh, other schools and other areas. Another thing that I learned when I was young is that uh, there were places and we could see, when you were able to see the difference and you were able to know the difference. Now, I'm not saying that because we still uh, we still have some of these situations, even in this place I'm living at now. There are places inside of the city that is called a county, and they don't have sidewalks. But as a girl, I lived in a small place 
that was a nuclei, and all of the people who were not of color lived in the middle of town and around. And everybody that lived uh, on the outside, uh, beyond the concrete walks and the uh, things that led to directly to downtown, those were the places where we lived on the outskirts. We didn't live up in the middle of town. So we had to walk through these areas in order to get to where we could shop. We had to walk through and past these areas to get to a school because they would build a school on the opposite end of the town where we were on another end. I was on the north side. We had to walk to the south side of town in order to get to this particular school. And I'm talking about a girl of six years old, seven years old. So I had all of these challenges, and I could see these things. So reading, looking, scoping out the differences about what is going on, where I lived, why couldn't I have these same kind of things or experiences as others, it always came back to my mind that I don't want to be able to be denied I don't want to live in a society where I'm denied the opportunity to be able to be just like other people. Not that I want to be like them, but I want to be able to have the opportunity to have those things that I want or the things that I want to do like other people. So when I got to Tougaloo, I first summer there before school started, I came down there and I was able to see the campus. That campus reminded me of the places that I had been denied. Although it was way out in the county, it was 17 miles north of Jackson, Mississippi. It was a place that was well uh, sculpted with um, landscaping and concrete walkways and magnolia trees and flowers and blooms, fragrance, and buildings set into uh, well-spread landscaping where you could see the rolling of the hills or the the rolling of the landscape. And then there were the instructors and the teachers that came from different parts of the world. And I was able to focus in on that early, the very time that I went there. There were students there from other countries, um, They didn't all look like me, but they were all on this campus from the Panama Canal Zone, from the Caribbean, from um, other areas, from just mostly from South America and those areas. So uh, my teachers that I found were from Germany, from uh, Israel, from other places. They had uh, their major languages were Germany a German and um, uh, French and all of these things. So that gave me an idea that, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to be able to be in a place that I could catch up with the things that I desired, to be able to learn the things that I wanted to learn, and an opportunity to be those kind of people or person that I want to be because that idea of going to Tougaloo gave me that momentum to know that here I was given this opportunity and I wanted to take advantage of that. So, you know, I have to ask you, because, you know, there's a lot of um, stereotype of Mississippi 
in Tougaloo is mm-hmm. in Mississippi. Uh, my mom's yeah. from Mississippi. My mom, my mom grew up there, and so I'm, I'm, you know, in Gulfport, past Christian area. So we used to go back and forth from New Orleans all the time. And um, there's this perception of Mississippi as being a little backwards, you know, being a little uh, and, and, and very difficult for people of other uh, races and ethnicities to uh, live in. What was that like? Do you know what it was like for those folks coming from all these different countries to go and create this energy on this campus? What was it that motivated that creation of that campus in that particular environment? Because that's a, probably an unusual environment in Mississippi at that time, I would imagine. You're right. You're right. One of the things that we stress and I even speak on today is that when you got to the campus of Tougaloo, there was some high gates, metal wrought iron gates. When you passed through those gates, it was like you went to another world. Uh, because Tougaloo was a land-grant college, the college land was donated to the Christian church back in the 1800s before um, the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, as they were getting ready to do these things, they set up land grants for the blacks, the people of color, the ex-slaves, and the people uh, who had been uh, mulattoes and things like that, where they could go to school. And mm-hmm. uh, this school was called um, Tougaloo Christian College for years. And uh, it was formed on a 500-acre plot of land, a plantation. And I would believe that uh, some of this um, came about so that they could provide this place right in the middle of the oasis of Mississippi. And this is one of the, the things that made Tougaloo so different from all of the other schools in the area that I would have had the choice of going to. And uh, I talk about a lot of this in my book, and uh, I do a lot of talking about this when I speak, and it's because of questions like you're asking, but during the time that we had those civil rights uprisings, the people would come to the campus of Tougaloo and they could feel safe there. They could spend the night on campus. They could be a part of the Tougaloo community because it was built in a community. Tougaloo is a town around, also around the campus there, a small town. And uh, the campus itself was just so nurturing that uh, even in those days, the staff stayed on the campus. The campus provided a place... uh, more of a village mm. where the, uh, the, the, the females uh, uh, could stay in some of the dormitories or the males could stay in some of the dormitories. They were the persons who were the head or the persons in charge of the dormitories, you know, the head mother or the head father or whatever, and uh, mm. to be able to be there to uh, help the students to uh, marginalize or to be able to... Uh, just in a, in a in a in a leadership uh, fashion, not your mother, not your father, but to be able to guide you along. Um, so that was what made that so well uh, uh, facilitated. And also, because we had these um, wonderful professors, one of the ones that so many of us remember. You don't remember everybody after all these years, but Dr. Borinsky. Um, 
he was a German. Um, he spoke in uh, German uh, fanatics. Uh, his his words came out with, uh, you know, you had to really listen to him to just hear what he was saying, but you got his messages because he always had a great message. And he was the head of the Department of Sociology, and that's how I got started with being a part of the Tougaloo Nine because I could go from my dormitory the first year right next door to the sociology lab, which was down in the bottom part of another uh, building, and go there and listen to people who would come in every Wednesday and speak to the students there and give us a glimpse of what was happening in the other parts of the world and give us an idea about what was happening with within our nation and within our city there in Jackson, as, as everyone know and have known that Mississippi really has been one of the worst uh, states in terms of uh, the strictness of uh, the uh, segregation and the degradation and all of these words that we use to describe how black people were or, uh, uh, worked with during those years. Um, second-class citizenship, the Sovereignty Commission. Please ask me another question about the Sovereignty Commission because this is one of the reasons why Mississippi was just so uh, hard-nosed on keeping uh, the blacks down and keeping the blacks Mm -hmm. from being able to expel. But um, we learned about the, the kinds of strategies and the things that were going on in the world that we could not have gotten from the newspapers by us having this I, this um, uh, educational process coming to the campus, uh, having all of these people coming in just made it so important to us that we were here, we could be able to uh, embrace some of these things. If, we, if other people could do it in the north and the east and out on the west coast, then, hey, we can get some of those things going right here in California. I mean, in, oh, my goodness, I'm... But right there in Mississippi So it was those kinds of things That uh, really um, gave me the, 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 the thought That I can do these things Because when you hear somebody say Or you hear their experiences You can relate to it And then you can put yourself Or put your foot in that shoe Or whatever in that place And, and you know that you have these capabilities You know that you have the desires. This is when I was a young girl. I had desires, but I didn't have the opportunity to make a difference. So uh, when I was at uh, Tougaloo, I could see that I could make a difference. And uh, I would like for your audience to know that um, I was a child because of my nurturing and because of my upbringing. Um, When I went to uh, high school, a new high school, um, I was so ingrained in what I wanted to be as my major field that uh, one of the teachers who knew me as an elementary child pulled me from my class, which was at middle school to the high school, to help her to be able to demonstrate some of the things that she wanted to see done in her class. So each year uh, she would come back from her Texas Women College and she would bring me in. She would show me all these things that she did, and uh, she would tell me so many things and tell me about college and all of these things. So I just got so much 
that was given to me just as a youngster until I just couldn't hold that back and not share it. Uh, when I uh, finished high school, it only took you 18 units for to be able to graduate. And back then, I didn't worry about you graduating early. You had to go your four years. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to graduate early, but I had 21 units as a high schooler. That meant I took everything in the curriculum. I didn't have any uh, classes that uh, you took um, uh, study hall for or something like that. And mm-hmm. I just took advantage of everything that I really could at, because I was given that opportunity. And I knew that there were times when I did not have an opportunity. So for me, it was imperative for me to try to just utilize everything that I possibly could to to be that kind of person that I wanted to be. And when you ask me who am I, I always thought about, I'm who I need to be if you give me the opportunity to be that. Well, and you keep saying this word opportunity. I'm curious. You keep saying this word opportunity. Is that a word that you think that we don't value in the same way now? Yes. 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 Yes, we have opportunities, but we don't pursue them. Hmm. We have doors open to us, and we let uh, society tell us that we can't do these things. Or we let people hold us back. We let material gains hold us back. If we want to do something in life and we're given the opportunity, it would do us well if we stepped forward and stepped up. Um, I was on another show uh, last week and it was very, very emotional. But this person shared one thing. We all have choices. Mm-hmm. We all have choices. But sometimes we've got to be able to act on those choices to make the best choice that we can and to look out and see what is the best choice out of all these things that we have if we're given an opportunity to make this choice. And that's what I, I guess that's why I really say opportunity because when I was growing up, I didn't have any opportunities not the way that we have them now. For what I look back, I'm saying I did have opportunities. I was just held back for those things that I desired to do by the ideology of the times. I was told that I couldn't do some things, not because I couldn't do them, but I was denied the opportunity to do them because of the color of my skin because of who I was and the genes that I came from. But my grandfather was a highly held in his community. He was he was well revered in his in his community. And um he was never a sharecropper. But everybody in the town pretty much was sharecroppers. Mhm. And when I look back I think about that. Why wasn't he a sharecropper? Because he desired to be more than a sharecropper. That didn't mean that he meant that he was more than his brothers, for whom more of them were sharecroppers. And he got his own land. 
And he didn't use his land for uh, to grow things. He used his land to make it a better life for his family. And then he made sure that he worked for the people who um, helped the sharecroppers. And he drove the vehicles around to pick up uh, people who would work on the farms and the plantations and things like that. So I could see that there were things that we could do if we really had the idea that we could do them and we were able to learn about things that we wanted to do and to be able to pursue those things. Now, as far as Tugu is concerned, when I got there, the first thing that I looked at was those people that stayed on the campus for the full time that they were there because they lived in other countries and they couldn't go home. So that gave me a thought. How do they make it? They didn't come from big uh, uh, families or families that had uh, so many means that they could just uh, not do anything, but they found out that they could uh, stay on campus. They could utilize their own uh, capabilities by working and doing things around the campus. They could utilize their time by taking extra classes and doing things. And so I, I found that that was a way that I could do that, too. Because my family was not a family of means. My dad was a uh, minister, and he also worked at a at, a, at an international paper mill. And we had okay. a large family. By the time that I went to college, there were six young men behind me. I was the only girl. And that was wow. something. <laughs> so wow. uh, to go to Tougaloo was more expensive than going to the state school. So I promised my dad that I would do a good job and that I would help out as much as I could by uh, working and uh, I had a small scholarship and my parents uh, agreed that they could pay a certain amount of money uh, every month and with my working uh, uh, in the in the school and doing certain things and uh, helping myself and being uh, innovative and you you may not know anything about this, but you know we used to fry hair, right? Yep, I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Worst Saturday afternoon of my entire week. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I learned how to do some things. So... Uh, People don't understand, you know, you've got to be innovative. You've got to figure out a way. We we call it entrepreneurship now. But if you don't advocate for yourself, who else is going to advocate for you? Exactly. And um, if you had to do some studying, some ex-studying, you had to do some things, you know, whatever it took, that was decent and in in order because we had to remember the Christian part also. Mm -hmm. There was one Mm -hmm. job that I did at Tuvalu. I'll just have to share this with you. One of my classmates clean house uh, did not so much clean house, but she would go every Saturday to work for this particular lady who would come to the campus and pick her up and take her to her house and she would clean the house and do some things. I guess mostly she would do maybe the things that I did for that one time that I took her her, her place for one time. 
uh, I had to go in there and I had to uh, iron all of the clothing. Uh, she washed them and uh, dried them, and I had to get them and ironed them and clean the bathroom and do all these things. And mm-hmm. I had one break, and that was to um, she called me to the table to have a glass of milk and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mm-hmm. And um, she took me back to the campus and. That was the last I saw of that. That was the last housekeeping job that I had. I said, I'm not doing that anymore. And you know what? I never did like the iron anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it means anything to you, Ms. Hollis, I don't like to iron either. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is one chore I don't like. I want to take you back because you mentioned a couple of things I want to I want to ask you about. One of them is... You you said you said this phrase, and I want to kind of tease that out a little bit. You said civil rights uprisings. You did not say civil rights movement. And I'm wondering about that word choice because I think it's significant. I think that a movement is not as powerful as an uprising. I think it it diminishes the power of what was actually happening. And I wonder if using that term, the civil rights movement, has not given it a passive air and made us feel that it was only mildly effective because it was passive or or that, that it didn't... Uh, uh, it could. It wasn't active in the same way that an uprising is, and so I'm curious. What are your thoughts, and why that particular word choice? Well, I definitely threw that out because it's what it meant to me. Um, you know, I over the years I've looked back at some of the things that has happened, and um, even in the town that I um, graduated high school from. Uh, there were some things that had to be done. And then I, I moved to uh, Oakland, <laughs> and I was there doing the Black Panther movement. Yeah, the Black Panther movement. I lived in the same area uh, that they really uh, protected. So uh, all through my years, I was able to uh, be around uh, proactive people um, and all of it... Um, wasn't the same, but uh, it, it, it it showed me that if in order to get some changes done, you had to make some stands or you had to make some choices or you had to um, make a difference or do something different. And I think that that's the key, to do something different. It doesn't mean that you're going to break the law, but you got to do something different. you got to reach higher. If you're going to try to get some fruit off of a tree, that means that you can't just stand there and expect the tree to let it fall for you. You've got to get some time. You've got to get up in that tree and uh, choose the tr- the fruit that you want. And um, so I guess uprising uh, it came out because I know that sometimes you have to move forward and you've got to move up. Um, mm-hmm. You've got to do something that takes you from where you are to where you want to be. And uh, being in all of those areas um, growing up, I know that uh, there had to be some changes 
And even for me, when I came back from college and had finished my degree, I had to do something different because I put um, I put out um, letters of uh, inquiry and all of those uh, letters and things and I'm reaching out to find a job. And um, I guess because I was a part of the Two Blue Nine, uh, they knew my name in Mississippi and all across here and in the parts of the Mislu area. And uh, so nobody hired me, and I know that they had job oh. openings. So, you wow. know, um, that didn't deter me. It just uh, made me uh, think about, okay, what can I do? And I do believe that I mentioned that I danced. I um, I was a a dance leader in, in college. I, I led the dance troupe uh, for the three years that I was there. And, yes, I, I finished Tougaloo in three years and three summers with oh, a wow. major in okay. two minors. So I did the same thing. I took everything that I could. I didn't have any downtime. And I still did all of the things that everybody else do. I attended the games, and I was a, um, a dance. We didn't have a cheerleader, but I did the dance leading of cheers, you know, the basketball games and things like that. We always did the dancing, uh, the activities or the, uh, the festivals and all of those things. I would do a dance troupe or something like that. So I got back to um, uh, my hometown, and um, so I needed a job. I, I'd always been in recreation I worked in recreation every year in high school with the uh, teacher that uh, embraced me. I knew how to do some things, and I knew that there were people who worked in the rec department. So I contacted uh, one of the people there, and I said, you know, you don't have any dance classes for children. Can I run a dance class? And um, I put in my little idea of what I wanted to do, and uh, for the six or so months that I was there, I had a dance class going. And at the end of the um, the, the time, maybe by the spring, I had a dance festival for all of the children. And oh, wow. because I was not getting money than that, I told the parents, you know, you don't have to pay me. Just make a contribution, you know, for gas and things like that. So it, I got a little funds to help me because I was staying at home and my parents in my dad's home so mm-hmm. I was able to do that and so that kept me but it also gave me uh, more to put on my resume and that's probably what got me my first job in Mississippi is because not only was I a physical education major with a biological a biological sciences and a mathematics minor that I could teach all of those things, and I was able to do dance. So I put all that on my resume, and uh, by the spring I sent out another resume, or, and I got a job. And uh, I was told that I had the uh, kinds of things that they wanted to see. Uh, the first thing that they had me to teach when I got there to the job was mathematics. Mm. And uh, the dance made a big uh, impact on them because they wanted to have dance in their curriculum. So you, you've got to be innovative. You've got to reach further. You've got to use all of your abilities to try to build yourself up. 
And you can't just wait for somebody to always give you something. And that's why I say we continue to learn. We have to continue to learn. We have to continue to reach. We have to continue to be able to find what it is that we can do in order to find the equation to solve the problem. When it sounds like what you did was what I call that is you you grew the space around you or you grew what you could do so that you could continue to find positions and grow positions and become more of what you wanted to become within those various environments. That's, that's it in a nutshell. That's pretty much it. Well, yeah. you mentioned something else that I was curious about because um, I had not heard of this. So what was the Sovereignty Commission? What was that? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, at this time, I'm going to take a sip of water, and I'm going to get <laughs> ready for to tell you about that one. Wow. Yes. Okay. Now, the Sovereignty Commission. I didn't know anything. You know what the word sovereignty means? Well, I I thought it pertained mostly to government or to nations and their, I guess, state of independence and their in, – uh, doesn't it have to do with them being not – you can't sue them or things like that? Like, I feel like that's what it was tied to in the way that I understood the word. Are you pretty much on, on key. H- have you heard about the Christian part? You know, no. God is his own sovereignty, that he's over all things. That he entails all things. God is a sovereignty God. Okay. Okay, the Sovereignty Commission in Mississippi was a unique group of individuals, some from the legislators, some from the educational department, some from various high um, polluting uh, positions in the state of Mississippi. And they all was getting paid, uh, I do believe, I'm not, I'm just going to say it like that, from government monies or county or city monies because they used their uh, power and their monies to intimidate the blacks. If you were doing, I'll just bring this in because we haven't talked on this sphere yet. Um Many people know who Meg Rivers was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dynamic young man. He was one of our, he was our mentor. Uh, he was um, the NAACP leader who uh, engaged us, not so much to go into that library, but to uh, help us to, um, to, um, get some things going in Jackson, Mississippi. There were things going because he was setting up things already in other cities around in uh, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the people who were a part of the 209 had experiences with Megar Evers before they got to Tougaloo and during the years that they were at Tougaloo because they were probably a parent uh, or family already connected with the NAACP there in Mississippi. 
So I'm trying to get to something with the Sovereignty Commission. Uh-huh. The Sovereignty Commission uh, did not like people like Mayor Evers. They did not like people who advocated for a better life for uh, blacks in Mississippi or uh-huh. who tried to encourage you to make things change in Mississippi uh-huh. or to make a difference in the lives or the circumstances of anyone in Mississippi. So the Sovereignty Commission had the ears and eyes of certain people, and they would make their lives uh, better or worse. And for the most part, they made people's lives worse because they would intimidate them. Mm. They would um, go in and they would... um, tell them that they were going to lose their family member or they were going to lose their jobs or that they would not have a a job to go to because uh, if they did certain things, it would definitely be known. And, And this is sort of a closed society because all of the things that they did over the years was found out after they opened the books on them to see some of the things that they really did. I think that some of these things are probably can be found in the um, in the uh, civil rights um, um, museum or in the um, Mississippi Department of Archives and History uh, uh-huh. that some of the things that the Sovereignty Commission did uh, they would uh, go to some people of color and tell them that. They would give them a certain amount of money if they told them who was doing what in the community to uh, read out who was uh, holding meetings and things like this. And I shared with another group that I was talking to that the church was probably one of the most um, wonderful places uh, that people could congregate and come together and to be able to uh, talk about things other than even just God, but to know that God was leading them through some of these things and that they had an opportunity to be able to talk together and to fellowship together and to even have little meetings about the community together. Um, So if a meeting was held, and you didn't need a newspaper, we didn't have a newspaper, everything was WOM. So, um, and a WM was just better than any um, telephone tree because uh, the, the messages would go from house to house, and family to family, and uh, you would find out what was going on just because of the neighbors and uh, the community. And, and if anybody is confused about WM, that's word of mouth, right? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Yes, that's, you know, we have all these acronyms and things now, so I thought I would just throw that in. <laughs> just in case, because, you know, okay. just in case. <laughs> but back then, everything was pretty much WOM. <laughs> uh, even if you had a telephone line, you know, the um, everybody had heard it on the party line. They would tell the rest of the folk that didn't have a party line, so... Things got around. 
So now that I've thrown in WM, uh, we were talking about the Sovereignty Commission. And the Sovereignty Commission would uh, try to figure out what was going on so that they could uh, squash it Mm -hmm. uh, through intimidation, through uh, bribing, through threatening of your very life or your very job or your family. It was more like the Gestapo in countries abroad and it was more like the the you know in the north they had these um, they weren't gangs then you know what they were the mafia mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so every 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 league every place has its way of doing things that uh, when they want to control the people so we had to know who the people were that um, were not able to hold their peace, and sometimes those people didn't get to know some things. But um, in order to get some things done, uh, there were so many things that happened in the South because people worked together. Even in my hometown of Natchez, where I graduated high school and everything, they came back and they did their own boycott. And I I guess I can throw this in because I just want to share with the audience that I guess that's one of the reasons why I, and I'm going to say this because when I first heard you, you were talking about finances, I believe, and money and things like that on one of the talks that I listened to you on. Um, People are so materialistic now until they really don't know how to really uh, grasp grasp the money and uh, and I say that because as people we are more consumerism than we are anything else and I'll, I'll say this because a lady that I know she's an elder lady you would think that okay lady you know a little bit better but uh, if a person cannot pay their bills and they want to borrow money to pay their bills why would they go and buy a $75 purse <clears throat> now it's not wrong with buying a $75 purse or a $100 purse or a $1,000 purse if you can afford it. But if you can't afford it, then buy what you can afford and try to live within your means. But that's just my thought. That's how I grew up. However, let's get back to what I was talking about. Uh, people did things for money. Or they did things for to save their lives, or they did things for in order to um, be um, recognized by the group that was holding others down. And so, this sovereign tree commission was the head of that, and it it is what um, Mississippi has already let everyone know because so much of this. And what I'm telling you has been opened up in the um, the Black Museum there in Jackson, uh-huh. in the um, Civil Rights Museum in Jackson, and the uh, Mississippi Department of Archives and History. So many of these things open up so that people could see the transparency of Mississippi. Mississippi admit that... It has been um, very much down on being um, equal 
in uh, its relationships with its citizens over the years. And that's why I um, I really wanted to read to um, write my book when I wrote my book back to Mississippi because I've been back to Mississippi um, after leaving there uh, back in the early '60s. No, they were late '60s by the end. I've gone back to Mississippi twice a year for the most part. Sometimes just once, and sometimes even three times or four times. It depends on what's happening with the family. But over my trips back to Mississippi, I um, I just uh, observed what was happening. And as you drive through all of the states and you drive through Texas and you drive through Louisiana and when you get to Mississippi and people say, oh, my, Mississippi. And, and in the early years, that was good reason to say, oh, my, because you just didn't know uh, what your status was. You had to be really careful about everything. But then, on the other hand, right now, so much of this is coming back, not just to Mississippi, it's coming back to the United States. Yeah. The United States of America is some in some of these same situations. But Mississippi, back to Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi opened up, and uh, the situation that I experienced as a girl I could see the change in all of the areas that I moved through in my travels, that people became more acclimated to each other. And uh, we didn't look at color. We didn't look at ethnicity. Um, Never had any white friends uh, growing up. But one of my first jobs when I moved back to Mississippi in those first years um, I got a job with the, um, um, it was one of those poverty-related uh, related jobs. And because of my experiences, uh, before I uh, came back, I had also done counseling at that school that I went to. Um, so I had the experiences and I had the degree. And so I was uh, chosen as one of the counselors, and uh, there were two other counselors both white, and uh, eventually there were two uh, African-American counselors and two white counselors. So we worked together, and I could see that there were some changes going in because of what we did in the community, working with the economic and poverty groups and uh, trying to get people to uh, be literate, well, to learn to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... um, I could see the change in a lot of the people and working in the community there in Mississippi. I could see that there was a softening of people. We we we, we were learning to work together, and uh, we were interacting with each other. When I would go to our Jackson for meetings and things like that, I was able to go to some of the major hotels even back then in the late 60s. That wasn't too long since I couldn't go into pretty much any of them unless I was working as as a, a person that cleaned the rooms or whatever and not uh, to hold a job or to be able to work where you're walking the floors and things like that. So we, we could see differences. And uh, by the time, um, by the time it uh, became... Uh, 
later on, um, I saw uh, my family members getting jobs in some of the areas that uh, you never could have uh, conceived um, in my hometown there. Uh, we had the first black mayor um, back in this, I think it was in the um, 70s, late 70s. Uh-huh. And um, so uh, the whole of the operation in the city uh, was broken down where there were people in my generation who were holding positions in most of the areas when I would go in and I could, uh, because I had property there too. Uh-huh. I could see the changes. I could see that there were some things going on. So by the time that I got to the um, uh, 2000s and went back, uh, my only concern was, you know, the things that we did as Tougaloo Nines, why wasn't anybody aware of what we did? Um, why wasn't there anything being done about it? Because all of the acknowledgement that you got in civil rights was all about the Freedom Riders. And the reason why you got the Freedom Riders because of the negativity, because of the um, those things that were... Uh, not good, um, and and I say this because um, during those early years uh, they had Ross Barnett as um, governor, uh-huh. and he was just a, a a man like George Wallace was in over there in Alabama. Um, Joe, uh, Ross Barnett said that nobody was going to come through the state of Mississippi and make it through uh, doing the um, Freedom Riders. Right. And he was adamant about that. And he was so uh, such a mean character that he sent the young people to prison. Um, and what they did was not prison-worthy, but that's what they did. And, and And what it did, it just brought more and more people down to do that. But then they got a lot of acknowledgement. They got a lot of um, air time for that. And, and, and sometimes some people do things because it is bad, because they, they, they love being the bad guy. Uh. And so Ross Barnett, he, was, he loved being the bad guy. He would stand there and tell you what he wasn't going to do and what was not going to happen. But in spite of what he did and what he tried to do, uh, people's hearts softened because one thing about it, um, the the exodus of, well, I don't guess you could call it exodus because they, they whether they would leave in other states, but they were coming to Mississippi, so it was an exodus from other from other states. They came to Mississippi and they were very uh, determined that Mississippi was going to make a change, and Ross Barnett was very determined that they were not going to make a change. But uh, time and influence and spirit overcame even Ross Barnett. So, so let me ask you, let me ask you a question then. We see that these things are coming. I don't want to say they're coming back. I I feel that some of these issues are just bubbling back up to the surface after being suppressed because it became out of vogue to be openly against any particular group 
for superficial reasons like race or ethnicity and so forth. But now that these things are bubbling back up to the surface, what would be your advice if, if, if you have any advice for particularly the young people who I think are the ones who have the most possibility of, of shifting things and shifting the energy. Young people have always been uh, the arbiters of change in our, in our society, as cer- as certainly at least in modern times. So what would be your advice for them? My advice to them is just what happened to us. Basically, learn what is happening. And that's the, that's the bad part. Right now, so many young people have not been told or shared. See, when we came along, we knew what was happening. We knew what we wanted. But you see, there has been a facade uh, covering what is happening because people have had uh, their strains of um, racism and uh so I know that everything didn't change altogether. There are, but the majority of the people, the let's just say the 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 ideology changed. People didn't mm. just outwardly down black people. Uh, they began to understand that uh, black people are people also, but there were certain strands of people who it's like anything else. It's like some people, they are not going to change some of the things that they think or the way they think. And and th- those are, it's just like anything else. You have some, um, uh, let's just say uh, if you are a drinker, drink alcohol, uh, you say that uh, he's a coveted alcoholic, you know, Mm-hmm. You, you you don't know that he's an alcoholic. Um, a closet, that's what they call him, a closet alcoholic. Uh, it did, it didn't mean that he doesn't drink or have an, um, a, um, a desire to overdrink, but he does it. He doesn't do it out in public or he doesn't do it where it's a nuisance. But it, he still has a, a desire to overdrink. Maybe a Saturday night, he just goes and just drink, drink, drink. Um, by the same token, there are people who have this ideology of uh, I, I don't like black people, I don't like this, or I don't like that, whatever it is, you know. And and they can have this, and it can be there, but it's latent. It not, it's not out there. It's sort of hidden, or it's not uh, pursued. Um, uh, for 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 my frankness, I would say that there's always been. Um, some of this, um, but when we get people that are in our highest position that are flaunting these ideas and saying things in a higher level that you're hearing, and then this is just like you're opening up uh, a keg of, uh, I, 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 I guess I'm just hitting on alcohol, but if you open up a keg of beer and it's still warm. It's going to form out. And if you open up, uh, some people call it a uh, opening up a, a book of worms or something like that, and you know, a box of worms. And if you open up a container that has something that wants to escape, 
uh, once you when once you open it up, then it's going to come out of there. If yeah. there is these attitudes that have been benign because of society, and then you have someone who has authority, and they open up these kegs of uh, alcohol or these boxes of uh, worms or all of these things and they let them out and, and there's nothing done about it, it's, it's okay, then you're going to see this. So you're going to have these things, but that doesn't mean that that's the norm. But because it's in a higher position, it's done with uh, without being uh, squashed or, or put down and or even to, to be told that that's not uh, what we should be opening up, then there are going to be those people who have those issues in their life or in their thoughts, they're going to feel like, okay, if it's done there, I can do it too. I think that's what is happening with a lot of this. Uh, I really don't like to go into the political realm, but I'll just say that um, our leaders should be have moral values. They should have love. They sh- Even if they don't have it, they should try to demonstrate that there is uh, cohesiveness. There is uh, things that we can do to help ourselves and not be negative and not to put things down or not to really uh, try to tear down. And, and, and the reason I'm saying tearing down is because everything that was built up by 44 is being pulled down. It's just like you put a rope on a post and tr- you, you start putting a rope on a, on a corral uh, post. You're going to pull the whole thing down. So one by one, everything, every post that's holding up this corral of life and loving and living and understanding and being responsible and celebrating life and the environment, everything that has been put up there over the last 40 years is being pulled down, but more so in the last 10 years. It's being pulled Uh down, not because it makes a difference, but because they want to be that kind of a person. So how do we get past that? Well, the young people in Florida has been taught how to be articulate Young people across the nation know that there is a difference and that the old ideology of um, our blacks is not what people always say. Once you get to know a person as an individual, you find out that that individual is the same as you. I saw a diagram on a Facebook Facebook post, and uh, it was posted by someone. I didn't know them. But they had two eggs, one brown and one white in one picture. And the next picture, they had them in a pan to be cooked, and they both looked just the same. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that what we have to make people know is that our outward appearance is not nearly as damaging as our inward thoughts about life. Inside, we are all the same, and um, we have to work at that just to work towards knowing that 
the life that we are living here is more cohesive than it is negative, that we can live together, that we can work together, that we can be a better nation, and that we have to know that everyone has a right, even if we don't like something, that we should be able to say, well, that's your thought, that's your right, and I have mine. But together we can make it all work. We can all live together. We can all work together. We can make this thing work. But we've got to come to an agreement. And my husband has a very way of saying this. He says, you know, my teeth and my tongue fall out quite often, but that don't mean I'm going to get rid of either one of them. (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, Ms. Hollis, thank you so much. We're going to start wrapping up. I know I've kept you longer than I I originally uh, asked for your time, and I appreciate you being willing to share so much of your time and your story with us. But um, why don't you share with us what you have going on now? What what do you want our listeners to know about? Where can they uh, get your books? And I don't know if you have any live events coming up or any place where you'll be speaking. I know you've been featured in some documentaries. What do you have going on that you want folks to know about? I continue to speak. I continue to talk. I continue to, um, if I wasn't here with you tonight, I would probably get ready to go to the Gospel Fest here in Stockton. I have spoken at uh, one of the colleges. I speak to schools and organizations, nonprofits, and I speak to them. I've gone across the nation, and I've spoken to uh, Wisconsin as one of my places of speaking. Mm. And <laughs> uh, my daughter, my granddaughter, and I, and one other person in the audience was the only person that was of color. But uh, oh, wow. I was well received, and I've spoken in um, in uh, Chicago and Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. I speak at libraries. I'm a proponent of for strong libraries. I. I'm working with that. I also interact with the school district and things here. My book is Back to Mississippi. And uh, my editor told me when I wrote the book the first time, she says, oh, those are some good facts. Now go and tell the story. So (laughs) I had to break down and I had to be uncomfortable to be able to share some of the things that would make those facts really uh, stick with people. And so I just say that, you know, if uh, people have heard me talk uh, on this show, uh, it's not a I, – I really am not trying to be the bestseller, but I really would like for my book to be out there so that people could see because when I put my my life into it, I wanted people to know why I am, why I am still advocating for – uh, the things the way, the way that I am, and my word for uh, my goal and word is to, to enlighten. And uh, after thirty something years of teaching, uh, reaching, and uh, demonstrating, I'm going to be working, uh, not working, but I'm going to go and hang out with some of my students uh, who are in their sixties. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Um, they're all my divas. They're across the United States, and um, they still say that even though uh, I haven't taught them in years, I'm still their teacher across. I love Facebook for that reason. Hi. So uh, people can catch up with book. you on on Facebook? People can catch yes. up with you on Facebook? Okay. Yes. What's your uh, handle on Facebook? Author okay. Geraldine Hollis. And awesome. also because I am uh, into health and fitness, I have uh, – 
I have a group that is called Walk, Move, and Go to Be a Better You. And, I love uh, it. It's a support group, and uh, mm-hmm. there is a, a bioactive for a healthy living group, and no, that's a page. And then my page mm-hmm. is uh, Back to Mississippi and March Memories. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ms. Hollis, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Uh, it's been fabulous. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, I appreciate and the opportunity. And like I shared with you, I have I have notes that I took from the last time I heard you talk. So, um Yes, uh, I, I love learning. I continue to learn. I, I have a Pride and Prejudice book uh, on my desk here to continue to read. Uh, I, I read and I, I, I go to books, shops, and things, and I'm always impressed with writings. And um, Oh, the next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to be on the 1st of um, March. I'm going to do my, mm-hmm. I'm going to host uh, with a, a tribe family at with the Voices of Wisdom, which is my show. And um, we're going to highlight as many of the uh, Tougaloo Nine as possible. We're going to be oh, hosted, wonderful. co-hosted with Michael O'Brien, who wrote the book, uh, we, um, we Shall Not Be Moved. And um, Wonderful. Uh, I'm I'm working with uh, well I'm not working but I'm just interacting with the uh, group at the library there in uh, Jackson they're my best fans and uh, <laughs> because uh, they had uh, they they helped us to get our marker for the uh, street there on State Street in uh, Jackson Mississippi and also um, the Tougaloo Nine is the uh, main. Um, part of the library for the new Civil Rights Museum. Uh, when you go into the library, not the library, but in the museum, Civil Rights Museum, uh, you go around this corner where all of the uh, um, people who have been jailed, and then you see in this big uh, archway all of the Tougaloo Nine there, bigger than life, and it's, it's so wonderful. And i just like to say that I know that the Mississippi uh, Civil Rights Museum is really um, awesome because I've gone to the one in D.C. a couple of times, and there's not much of a difference there. So Mississippi has awesome. In my book, I said even back in 2012 that Mississippi has made a 180-degree turn towards its citizens, and I know that that's true. That's wonderful because Mississippi actually is a beautiful state. I've been there many times uh, to see my mom's people and, and just visiting the Gulf Coast. The Gulf Coast is one of my favorite places to go, y'all. Um, wonderful, yeah. beautiful, beautiful and wonderful, wonderful place. Well, again, Ms. Hollis, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Guys, that is our show this week. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. I know we uh, had a little bit longer show than normal, but this is a really important time for us in a variety of ways. And we didn't even get to touch on some of the other things that we could have discussed. But I want you guys to reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Again, a big shout out to Beverly Black, Tribe Family Channel, and all the members of Tribe Family Channel. It is a pleasure and an honor to be associated with her and that great family of programs. Make sure you guys tune into the show 
on March 9th when my guest will be author and coach Dr. Kendra Birch. And you can find us every other Friday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern at bit.ly slash somewhere in the middle radio. You can also find us at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash somewhere in the middle podcast. And let's continue the conversation. You guys be good. Stay mindful. Remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all. I'm a helpful Southern California Honda person, and recently we've been doing random acts of helpfulness, like donating shoes to children in need and helping a music therapy facility with new instruments. And we can help you, too, with a great deal on an award-winning Honda, like the all-new and completely redesigned Accord, a car and driver 10 vest a record 32 times. Click the dealer locator link to find a dealer near you and go to SoCalHondaDealers.com to suggest a random act of helpfulness for someone you know. Car and driver January 2018. Hi. I'm a helpful Southern California Honda person, and recently we've been doing random acts of helpfulness, like donating shoes to children in need and helping a music therapy facility with new instruments. And we can help you, too, with a great deal on an award-winning Honda, like the all-new and completely redesigned Accord, a car and driver 10 vest a record 32 times. Click the dealer locator link to find a dealer near you and go to SoCalHondaDealers.com to suggest a random act of helpfulness for someone you know. Car and driver January 2018.